Welcome to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. Today we're talking to uh, Silence Chief Executive Stuart McClure. How are you, Stuart? Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much, James, for having me on. Okay, now we're going to be talking a lot today, obviously, about cyber and issues around cyber um, being the Silence mission. But I thought I'd start, I, we were talking earlier, you've got a very interesting backstory on your first trip to Australia. I'm wondering if you can, there was a, a very alarming travel schedule with, with a plane that ran into some trouble. What if you step us through that? Because I'm interested in how this has kind of shaped who you are and what you're doing. Well, yeah, you're, you're referring probably to my very first trip to Australia, and I was only 19 and traveling with my mother and my younger brother. And we went from L.A. to Honolulu to Auckland to Sydney, or at least that was the plan. And when we landed in Honolulu, uh, we were in coach uh, back in row 40-something, 41 or 2, and uh, we're actually offered uh, upgrade seats because um, my stepfather worked for United at the time, which had marketing for uh, Impact Region. And uh, we declined it simply because it was just taking us too long to get our stuff together and sort of move up. And we were going against the, the traffic coming in on the plane at the time and the transition. And uh, we took off. And about 15 minutes into the flight, um, an incredible explosion occurred on the plane and the nose pitched down and we just all thought we were going into the water. We didn't know what was going on, but the whole plane was just disintegrating around us. You know, the, the inside of the plane, the fuselage just came off, the facade came off. Um, so you're just seeing raw metal in much of the plane. And of course, so just debris, debris flying all through the Debris cabin. everywhere. Um, of course, People screaming, crying, praying, you know, the usual. And then looking out of the right-hand side and seeing the engine closest to us with flames coming off of it. Wow. And uh, looking again five minutes later and seeing, or maybe less, and seeing the number four engine also on fire. So they had to turn off both engines. We didn't know what had happened. But what we discovered when we miraculously landed on, on the ground was that a 20 by 40 foot hole had been ripped inside uh, of the plane and had sucked people out in their seats. So nine people, nine souls perished that day. And uh, we were interviewed for many, many hours by the FBI. It was like 24, 36 hours trying to understand because Lockerbie, the bombing at Lockerbie, had just happened the year before. And they had also had a plane over Hawaii that had the roof uh, open up, and they thought it was a bomb. Uh, that was the natural sort of train of thought. After many, many weeks and months of investigation and discovery, it was revealed that it was a potentially a short in the wiring to the door. So it was a design flaw. Yeah. It was designed improperly. The backup system, and they're always always a backup, right? were um, claw hooks that were to hook the door should it open in uh, mid-flight under pressurization. Well, the hooking mechanism was made out of aluminum and the door was made out of steel. So it's degraded? Under high pressure, it just melted them like that. So again, two two design flaws. One was the short in the wiring that told the door to open and the second was the 
latching mechanism that was supposed to hold open a door that opened in mid-flight under pressure. And so this design flaw to me, both of these were revelational to me. Like, how could a design flaw kill people like this? It was just, I never conceived of the concept. And um, it, it really became a mission for me to take whatever I do and, and help protect people from the preventable. If it's preventable, we should be able to prevent it. So, so you've obviously so you've got into the into the tech industry. You're obviously well. It seems you're a person in a hurry. Do you think that you've had that imprinted in you just to get on with yeah. whatever you need to get on? I with? think so. Because when I came back, um, I was in University of Colorado. I came back, and everything was just different. I, I saw things different. I talked to people different. I worked different. It was just a different way of seeing the world, and I realized. Life's just too short to be unhappy and to not do something that you love and be passionate about. And so that's where I think really the spark of my entrepreneurship really began. And uh, two years later, I graduated university and I started my very first company in 1992. And, um, and then started another one in 1999 and sold that to McAfee. And that's so, what got into the McAfee. So that was found stuff. That was found stuff. So obviously cybersecurity also. Cybersecurity, yeah. And it was the, my first venture-backed company. Mm-hmm. So I had to do fundraising and get people interested in vaporware and you know get them to believe in me. Yeah. And uh, figure out how to deliver on it afterwards. You know, they say entrepreneurship's like jumping off a cliff and building your wings on the way down. And that's exactly what it is, you know. You have no idea how you're actually going to get it done, but you just figure it out somehow. That made me feel the most alive and sort of honoring those that did not make it done that night. Right. Okay. And so literally the feeling of the jumping off the cliff, the living at, yeah. at a hard pace. You, yeah, exactly. Live full. Okay. Well, you've done it a couple of times subsequently. Yeah. So let's. So you've sold um, Foundstone in 99 into McAfee. Now, sold, sold it in 2004. Started sorry, in 2004. Sold that's in right. 2004 in McAfee. Bought us, yes. And then you've worked for McAfee in, in various roles. Various roles uh, yes. And then you've jumped out to do silent. So I wanted yeah. to ask, what did the world look like in 2012 when you jumped out and yeah. why? Yeah, so McAfee had just been acquired about two years prior um, by Intel, if you remember that. Yep. So, And we were struggling to deliver on the promise there. The promise was to embed security into the chip. Well, the way security works, cybersecurity works, there's no other way it works um, without the advent now of AI and certainly back then, is that they cannot prevent cyber attacks. They can only detect when one is successful and they can respond as quickly as possible. So detect and respond. That's how the entire industry is built. And so as I started to get out there in the world and meet with everybody, customers, partners, you name it, investors alike, they all wanted prevention. But we couldn't deliver that. And we certainly couldn't put it into a chip because the very nature of detect and respond means you have to know all attacks before you can prevent them. Yeah. Which seems counterintuitive, but that's how it works. It's like to stop a burglar burglarizing your flat or your house or apartment, you need to know every way the burglar could ever get into it and then put a video camera on there with somebody 24-7 watching. Yeah. You see? And then making a judgment call on, oh, this is a burglar. No, no, this is your son who forgot his key. Oh, no, this is, you know, your ex-husband who you gave 
the right to come into the flat and grab the you know keys or something else. You know, like is it that unfortunately is what you you need. That's what the industry requires today, or certainly up until I started the silence. And so that frustration of just beating my head against the same wall over and over again, not making any real material movement or progress, uh, inspired me to start silence. Is that I, I wanted to definitively provide the ability to prevent cyber attacks. Not just the known, but the unknown. And by learning using machines and computers to learn from all of the past attacks, we did exactly that. We learned how to prevent future attacks. So jumping out, it's not without risk. You're uh, building the wings on the way down, I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, like AI wasn't being talked about as it is today. Yes. It's the new, new thing, I suppose. So. So how did that go? Raising money, even uh, get, getting out there and, and talking to people that this is the, the model that has to work. Yeah, in the early days, we actually didn't use the term AI, even though it is exactly what we were doing. We used the term mathematics. Because at the end of the day, what we are using is pure mathematics, yeah. just a very advanced learning algorithms. However, if you've ever started a conversation with using the word math or maths at the, at the first few sentences, yeah. you put everybody to sleep or you scare them to death. Like they don't want to talk about it yep. because they're intimidated. So we realized that quite quickly that using mathematics was not going to be the way to describe what we do. So we ended up moving into the machine learning um, language and messaging as well as the artificial intelligence. And, and from there really sparked an entire industry. So cybersecurity was ripe for application of AI. And as we started to develop and release the technology and found such great success, others wanted to copy. And so they've incorporated to some degree, typically lesser than more, hmm. uh, capabilities around AI into cybersecurity. But I believe it is the only solution that can uh, actually prevent attacks in cybersecurity. And so it's not going anywhere uh, anytime soon. It does seem amazing that some people haven't got that message. Yeah. Really, it's taken a very steady drumbeat over many years. I wanted to ask you about the Office of Personal Management. Yeah. That was a, an extraordinary hack. 2012, 2014? Yeah, was the first, first one. Okay, so millions of government employees' personal details and addresses and all sorts of things were... 22 million. 22 million. So, but that was kind of a defining moment for you guys. It was, so absolutely. Yeah, step us through that. Yeah, so... We had been just a couple years old at the time. Uh, we had released our first product, proving that we could actually solve this cybersecurity attack uh, problem with prevention. And we were just we were getting out there trying to make sure everybody can see it, believe it, know it, feel it. And we got a call from the U.S. government to uh, they heard about our technology thought they were seeing some very unusual behavior inside their environment and wanted to see if our technology caught it, which, of course, they did. And when they realized that not only that they were definitively attacked and hacked at that time, but that our technology would have prevented it. So they didn't actually know at the time? I thought you'd come in post, post-hack. post You actually, that was yours. We, you... we came in, well, post-hack, yes, but they, they didn't. So what they were describing to us were symptoms, like, Right. Oh, we, we see this, you know, huge network traffic that's encrypted from this one jump server. Right, and, right. You know, we've been looking on the device and we can't see anything funky. Yet. We don't know why this is happening from this process. And so we came in with our services group and investigated because they had heard about our technology and we were potentially detect and prevent this stuff. Once the services team had gotten in there, they had run our technology to confirm, yes, we found this particular attack. 
presence and running in the environment, then they deploy this uh, throughout their enterprise. So, and then Silence, I take it, got a yeah. hockey stick growth. Yeah, for, that's right, know. exactly. Because shortly thereafter, an investigation was uh, performed on outside by a, a governance committee in the US. And um, they went through a full investigation, interviewed us all, went through excruciating detail of what happened pre, um, during, and post the attack. And, and, and wrote a report on it. Um, and it's a very lengthy, I think it's a 100 page, 90 page report, mm-hmm. uh, 30 pages of which are dedicated to silence and how we caught it and how the technology can prevent it. I had a look at that report. I can't say I read it all the way through. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I did, I did have a look at that report. Uh, that particular report was was a, was a the line in the sand where they, they changed some thinking in the US federal government. Yes, they did. So I, I guess. Moment, watershed moment. Yeah. Me. So good for you guys. But good for the, the kind of philosophy that you have been talking and therefore for a bunch of other companies and for security generally, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, yeah. It allowed us to get heard by a much larger audience that this AI technique, uh, machine learning capability, is the real deal. That it actually does not just detect but prevent cyber attacks in real time before they have a chance to get a foothold. And before it's very, very difficult to get them out. So now everyone's talking about AI and machine learning in regards to this. Can I just talk as a, as a CEO uh, from a practical standpoint, where are you getting the skills from now? I mean, these guys must be in insane demand. It's incredibly difficult and painful to, to hire the right amount of talent and capabilities and skill sets out there in the world. You know, there are many estimates that there are over 2 million uh, jobs uh, open for cybersecurity experts that cannot be fulfilled today in the world, uh, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, so is that that's a double-edged sword for you? Like, Well, for us, it's, it's good and it's bad, right? Yeah. Double-edged, exactly. Yeah. So the bad side is we do need very skilled individuals to help us continue to build and innovate and drive the technology out there. But at the same time, our technology is built to not require humans. Right, okay. So if we are really good at our jobs, we take the need from 2 million down to 200,000 cybersecurity professionals that are needed in the world. Um, things like that. And, and that is the hope of the technology, is to get all of the expertise that is required to manage cybersecurity down to the core bare minimum of folks that then go and discover and investigate the most difficult attacks to detect by the AI. So things that the AI might miss. Because even though right now we can be uh, rated uh, consistently over 99.9% in in detection and prevention rates, there's still a 0.1 or 0.05 or something like that where there will be an attack that can bypass us. And because of that, you absolutely need the ability to detect and respond and investigate with human beings, assisted with automation and technology, of course, but ultimately human being to make that decision. And so you want the folks that you're hiring to be um, educated and trained in the ability to go find the 0.1%. Yeah, okay. So so that's interesting. Obviously, in Australia, like... Like elsewhere, our government has invested, uh, you know, substantial amounts of money in building the the infrastructure to protect their own systems and the communities. Australian Cyber Security Centre, the Australian Signals Directorate, I guess, is a defence institution. In our latest budget, they've put up some money for rapid response teams and uh, a cybersecurity response fund to enable 
you know, quick response teams to to get involved. Is that is that a structure that everyone is now doing? Like, is yeah, that- yeah, for the most part. I mean, certainly the Five Eyes and um, other large nation states have that sort of structure. They probably even take it a little bit further, but they certainly have the ability to have these strike teams that are all they do all day long is do um, threat and uh, hack investigations, um, trying to detect, respond, investigate, recover, and help government entities, but also corporate entities as well that might get caught in the net of whatever they catch to go and address whatever problems that they're having. They also typically, uh, governments, have very active uh, hacking teams as well. Yeah. So, and, you know, I can't speculate on Australian government, but I certainly would anticipate them having similar teams. And yeah, they've, they've actually acknowledged offensive capabilities uh, within the ASD anyway, so part of the yeah, defense establishment. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know to what degree extent and length and capabilities, et cetera, but it is absolutely a core part of any cybersecurity um, response program, Yeah, for sure. Well, you would certainly hope that they're very, very good at their game. We would hope. Yeah. Well, hopefully they've read my book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they probably have. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to, to move on. On the business side, BlackBerry. Yes. So, I mean, you know, in the normal course of events, a company like yours might might end up on a stock exchange or just, you know, raising money infinitum through the capital markets. But BlackBerry's come along. Yeah. So talk us through, what, why was BlackBerry interesting to you? So, you know, summertime last year, go back a little bit, uh, we were on a track to go IPM. Um, we had a pretty clear path. Uh, we knew what we were trying to achieve there to go and create a global brand, to continue to push our technology to protect every computer user and uh, thing under the sun. And uh, we uh, were approached by Blackberry. And at first, of course, I think I had the same reaction most everybody does, which is, are they still around? What's going on? What are they doing? And no idea. And I had the same reaction. But as I started to investigate and I started to look in and research what uh, John Chen has been able to do and transform that company from a near-death experience, a very near-death experience, into a thriving business inside cybersecurity, it's beyond impressive. It'll definitely be a part of a Harvard Business Review, business school uh, analysis somewhere along the way. And if I was an investor from the early days of BlackBerry, I mean, I'd be throwing him on my shoulders and running around town all day long, right? Because he's been able to transform that company in a way that I've never seen done before, ever, not just in cybersecurity. So... That was fascinating to me. So what, why? Why did you do this? What I tried to understand and what I learned was they had the same mission we had, which is to protect everyone under the sun from cyber attack and uh, using both safety and cybersecurity. So they had the safety side. We had the cybersecurity side. And that's two sides of the coin. Sorry, no so sides safety side? Yeah, so, you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll often call it compliance. So there's two, there's two primary ways to sort of uh, reduce risk in a cyber perspective, right? The one is to employ compliance criteria. And what that means is like, well, somebody smarter than me gave me a list of things that I need to make sure that I check off that I've done, right? right okay, right. check, 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 check. Well, that's just a list of known things from known attacks. Okay? And you're hoping that, well, if I just comply with all of these regulations or these policies, that I will, you know, stop or prevent or at least attack bad guys from coming in. The problem is that's very reactive. You cannot build a compliance mandate that sees into the future. Yeah. 
So the other side of it is threat-centric view of cybersecurity. So are you able to actually detect and prevent the actual threat that created the compliance mandate? See? So there wouldn't be any compliance needs if there were no threats that were successful. So threats is really where they start. So the threat side is what we've been delivering on, yep. and, and the safety or compliance side is what Blackbird's been delivering on. So bringing the two together, you now have two sides of the coin that can solve both, or you can solve cybersecurity in both manners. And that compliance has really been shown through uh, safety, safety of systems. So for example, Blackberry's installed with their QNX on over 120 million connected cars today and around the world. They can protect the communications platform, the interactivity between uh, cars, communicate uh, for the safety of the car and the passengers themselves. We then can also be embedded from a threat perspective to prevent a next-gen threat. Yeah. Something that's brand new that, that a compliance mandate didn't even know existed. And so using AI to drive the threat prevention and AI to now um, also employ and build the compliance structure and framework. Now you have an incredibly powerful predictive preventative platform that we call Spark in BlackBerry terminology that gives us the ability and the only ones in the whole world um, mm. to actually prevent from the embedded to the mobile, to the desktop, to the server, to the cloud. And all platforms. I presume across all sorts of IoT applications. And, exactly, yeah. precisely. So. We've been embedded, uh, Silence has been embedded in, in numerous uh, biomedical devices, for example, initial control systems, SCADA, medical equipment, things like that. And with uh, BlackBerry being heavily involved in cars, smart cars, yep. connected cars, um, as well as biomedical as well. It, it's just, a, it seemed to be a match made in heaven. It, it really created this accelerant for us to accelerate our mission and to get to the mission sooner, get to the goal. So, okay, well, let's just finish up on a personal note then. You founded several companies. You're now inside a large company, well, I guess the combined large company now. So you've been used to running your own thing. How does that suit with you now? How long yeah. is it going to last? Yeah, that's, that's the second question I always get asked. The mm-hmm. first one is BlackBerry who? What? Right? Yeah. Why? That makes sense. Yeah, so the, the ultimate question, uh, this question really comes down to to knowing me and who I am. So I am a mission-first guy. Uh, not much more motivates me. You can, you can do whatever you feel like you need to do. Ego, status, money doesn't do it at all for me. Never has. And so mission is number one. Um, so if the missions are always aligned to protect the world from cyber attacks and providing safety to the world, I'm, I'm here to serve, and, and I will be for a long, long time, because that's that's what gets me going. That's what get, gets me up out of bed every morning. And remember, this is, I guess, my third acquisition. So Fountain was acquired by McAfee, which yeah. was far bigger than us. I think it was 3,000 employees at the time. We were 120 employees. Then McAfee was bought by Intel. And we were about 6,000 employees, uh, and Intel was 100,000 employees. And then, you know, now with um, Silence and BlackBerry, but BlackBerry was 3,000 employees when we were 1,000. You know, we were a quarter, we're now a quarter of uh, the total population. So it's um, certainly not as big as I've been inquired by. So we do have mission alignment um, with uh, the BlackBerry side and the team and uh, the Silence side and team. And now it's just an issue of executing and bringing the cultures together. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be watching it closely. Yeah, it'll be fun. Right. Watch it for sure. Stuart McClure, thank you. Uh, thanks very much for having us. Thank you.
you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.